Amen. Wasn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, all praise to Jesus, right? Yeah. Man, that was like an angelic choir leading us. I think that was just a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like only. Rather than a few hundred people, there will be a few hundred billion people, I pray. Right, church? Woo. Oh, God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> well, good morning. What a way to start the morning. We're going to continue to worship here uh, in the Word. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is, is Chris. I am the pastor of Soul Care and um, an elder here. And I get to open up God's Word uh, with you this morning. We're going to continue in our life series through the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, we're really in the middle of what's called this um, Jesus's final discourse. This is this uh, section of, of time between uh, chapter 14 and chapter uh, really 16, but it, it goes into 17, uh, where Jesus is giving some last instructions to his disciples. He is just hours right now, um, hours away from his arrest and uh, crucifixion. And so uh, uh, with that in mind, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16 this morning. John uh, chapter 16. Now, uh, last week we looked at uh, John uh, 15 and what it means to abide with Christ. Uh, what does it look like to stay close to Jesus? Uh, and it's really characterized uh, uh, by, by two things, two aspects, two things. It's uh, characterized by dependence on him through the word and prayer, okay? And, and then secondly, uh, it's uh, characterized by obedience, so doing what our Lord uh, commands us to do. So. Uh, dependence and obedience. And then the rest of John 15, which we weren't able to cover in the sermon, so hopefully you were able to, to study that uh, rest of that chapter on, on your own or in, maybe in small group. But the rest of John 15, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that it's going to be hard to abide with him. Abiding with him is, in fact, going to be the hardest thing that they have ever done. Why is this? It's because Jesus says that the world hates him because they don't believe in the Father and they don't believe in him. And, and, and therefore, by extension then, that the world is gonna hate the disciples as well. Tribulation and hardship are coming. But don't fret, it's worth it. Uh, Jesus tells them why they should persevere here in uh, chapter 16. So with that in mind, let's dive in here uh, and get after it this morning. Uh, uh, we're going to actually do a, a little bit of a running start here this morning and, and pick up in verse 26 of John 15. So John 15, beginning in verse 26, the word of the Lord says this, when, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus here in verse 1, uh, it, it's, a, it's a continuation of what, he's, uh, what he's been developing really since verse 18 of chapter uh, 15. The world hates Jesus, and therefore the disciples are going to be hated by Jesus as well. But Jesus says here in 26 that um, he's going to send the helper, the spirit of truth, to bear witness about him. 
And he says that the disciples as well will bear witness about Jesus. So that kind of raises a question, maybe in your mind as well. How does the Spirit exactly bear witness of Jesus? How does he, how does he uh, 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 give a testimony about Jesus? Well, first, I, I think it's this. Um, he testifies about Jesus by indwelling believers and reminding them of who Christ is and the salvation that he has accomplished on the cross. So the Holy Spirit testifies by indwelling us and reminding us of that truth. That's one. Second, um, he testifies of, um, uh, in another way here. It's actually, uh, we're, we're going to talk about it here in verses 8 through 11, but here's a little bit of a preview. The Holy Spirit testifies or bears witness about Jesus through conviction, through conviction. So hold that thought, and we're going to get there here in just a few moments. And Jesus tells the disciples um, that he is saying these things so that, always pay attention to the so that's, so that they would not fall away so that they would not walk away and abandon their faith in a Jesus Christ. They will experience hatred when they're kicked out of the synagogues and even murdered. And Jesus even says like, like those who are doing the murdering are even thinking that they're, they're doing it um, by the will of God. I, I think of the apostle Paul. Um, before he, his conversion, his, his name was Saul. He was so zealous for doing the work of God that he persecuted Christians and believed that even killing them was doing that very work. Oh, was he wrong? As he came to, to realize and find out. And by the way, I'll just note, getting kicked out of the synagogue, by the way, w- was a massive deal. Uh, imagine being kicked out of your family and your community never to be allowed back in. Imagine being cut off completely from the life of of your family and community. Uh, Imagine being considered dead to your own family and community. And and that's what it meant to be kicked out of the synagogue in that time. It was a big deal. That meant a lot, that hurt a lot. Can you imagine the pain? And Jesus here, he, he doesn't like mince his words here. He wants the disciples to think soberly about what is going to happen as his followers. He wants them to count the cost. And when those tribulations come, Jesus doesn't want them to be ill-prepared. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. Can I just say, the same applies for us. Jesus does not want us to be caught off guard or surprised when hardship or tribulation or suffering comes. Now, hold that thought here. We're gonna come back to verse four in just a moment, but I want us to see something really cool here in this text. So flip over to verses 32 to 33 at the end of the chapter here. Um, 32 to 33, Jesus is still speaking, and this is what he says here. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, Jesus uh, finishes this this chapter off in the same way that he begins it. Uh, He's told the disciples all these things so that in him they may have peace. What does it say in verse one? I have told you these things so that, what? So that you may not fall away. In order to have peace in Jesus, you can't fall away, right? You have to stay, remain, you have to remain with him and stay close to him. 
the tribulations and the pains and the sorrows, persecutions and the murders will come. But he tells them to take courage because he has overcome the world. I just want to uh, make a note here um, because the word overcome is kind of a loaded word in our cultural moment these days. What Jesus means by overcome is that he has conquered the world. He is victorious over the forces of darkness. The, the, the king of light has entered into the kingdom of darkness, and guess what? The light wins. The darkness does not overcome the light. The reverse happens. The light overcomes uh, the darkness. And the way that we, we really see this happening is that Jesus takes the kingdom when he dies on the cross and, and defeats death through his resurrection. And one day, when the king of kings returns and the lord of lords on the white horse, right, uh, the kingdom will be consummated and all darkness will be gone, right? Praise the Lord for that. But see here, right now here in this chapter with what he's saying here in uh, verse 1 and then in verse uh, 33, these are our bookends of what Jesus is getting at in this part of the discourse, okay? Here's the main idea. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Remaining with Jesus is difficult, but he has overcome the world and gives the grace we need to stay close to him. Friends, sticking close to, to Jesus is hard when the world hates us. I don't like being hated. I know you don't like being hated. It's hard. Add to that our own indwelling sin struggles. Add to that the, the brokenness that continues to slide its way into our lives. I'm telling you, abiding with Jesus is hard. And just like Jesus' disciples, when hardship comes, we are all prone to fall away from Christ. It's like, nope, I'm out. It's hard, nope, I'm not comfortable with this. I might die, nope, I'm out. But see, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that following him, remaining uh, with him, abiding with him is hard, and so he knows we need help. And so everything else here in chapter 16 is the help. Everything else in chapter 16, in between these two bookends of verse 1 and verse uh, 33, is about what Jesus gives the disciples, and us, by the way, as a means for staying close to him through all of life. Specifically, in fact, Jesus gives three means of grace to help the disciples and us abide with Jesus throughout life's hardships. Okay? Three means of grace. Now, let's pick up here um, in sort of the middle of verse 4. Middle of verse 4. Uh, Jesus is uh, going to continue here, and he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
Jesus tells the, the, the disciples that it's actually to their advantage that uh, he goes away because he, he's going to send the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth to come and help them. Now, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, thank the Lord, but if you're uh, anything like me, um, you would have to maybe ask this question, why is it to their advantage, or, or how in the world is it to, the, to their advantage that the, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the, the, the man who, who, who took on flesh, the, the, oh, sorry, the God who became man and took on flesh, going back to the Father, how in the world, him leaving this world and sending the Spirit is to our advantage? It's a great question. There's two things, I think, with that. First, the, the coming Holy Spirit inaugurate, inaugurates what the Old Testament anticipated. You see, back in the, in the Old Testament, in the major prophets, often when, when God spoke of, of his Spirit coming, it was in the context of the new covenant, the new covenant that Jesus then inaugurates when, with his blood when he goes to the cross. So with the Spirit coming and Jesus sending him, what he's, what he's doing is he's, in, he's inaugurating the age of salvation. Jesus goes back to the Father, the Spirit is sent, in Acts, we see what happens in Acts. He comes, the church is born, and immediately people begin coming to know Jesus. The age of salvation has been ushered in. That's, that's one advantage. A second advantage is that the Spirit will uh, convict the world and guide the disciples. Um, the first means of grace that we see here then is the grace of the helper. So the grace of the Holy Spirit. Hey, you remember a couple of Sundays ago in chapter 14 when we saw some specific marks of the Holy Spirit in that text? Well, here in this text are some additional marks or evidences of the Spirit's work. And the first one here that we, we can see is, is that uh, he is going to convict the world concerning sin. That means then that for unbelievers, the, the Spirit convicts them of their rebellious hearts toward God. And, and it's only because of, of the Spirit's work that a person dead in their, their sins and trespasses can actually come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Only the Spirit can make what's dead alive. So he's going to convict the world of sin so that unbelievers may see that and repent. But also, uh, for us believers, for those who are, are walking with Christ, uh, he convicts us, the Spirit convicts us of ongoing uh, sin issues in our lives so that we might repent, so that we might draw even closer to the Lord and stick even closer to him. So the, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. I, I think this is a, a time for us to just pause for a minute and, and not go and move too quickly through this. I mean, nobody likes to talk about conviction and sin these days, and yet scripture does, so we must. It's a good thing, actually. If you're not a, a believer, if you're, if you're not in Christ, might the Spirit be convincing, convincing you of your need for Jesus? Might he be prompting you to repent of your sins, to trust in Jesus? To trust in him to save you instead of you trying to save yourself? Hey, listen. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christ died for you. He died for me. And if you're not in Christ, might the Spirit be prompting you to yield your spirit to him, to yield yourself to the authority of our Savior and turn away from your sins. Christ died for those sins and turn your face toward him and begin to walk with him in newness of life. For those in the room who are Christ followers, I don't know, might the Spirit be convincing you of, at this moment of any unconfessed sin that you may have in your life so that we might repent, draw even closer to the Lord? See, sin blinds us. We have blind spots. Not all blind spots are sin, but a lot of, a lot of our blind spots are sin issues in our lives, and the Spirit is doing a work to Convict us to reveal those so that we might repent of them. Might the Spirit be doing a work there in you? That's not all that uh, the Spirit is doing, Jesus says. He also says that uh, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. See, Jesus is uh, the righteousness of God manifested the world thinks they have a form of, of righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. But if we want to see what perfect character and upright living looks like, we just need to look at Jesus. And very quickly, we recognize that the world's righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Additionally, the world has this um, falsely judged Jesus in denying him to be who he says he is, the world has falsely judged him to be a liar and a fraud. And they're guilty of, of blasphemy. And see, the, the, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of their own forms of self-righteousness and, um, and also their false judgments of Jesus. Why? Why is, why is the Holy Spirit doing this? So that they might repent. They might turn to Jesus for salvation. Not only is the Spirit going to do a convicting work, however, let's look here in uh, verse 12. We'll see something else, another mark of the Spirit. It says here in verse 12, uh, Jesus is sp still speaking. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here, here's another work of the Spirit. He will guide the disciples into all the truth. You see, the Spirit knows the truth. He knows it because he's heard it spoken. Jesus has spoken the truth, and the Spirit will then speak that truth into the disciples, and in so doing, he will glorify the Son. He will glorify Jesus. Now, we have to be careful when we come to passages like this about how we apply it to our lives. Um, there are two aspects to understanding the Spirit's guiding uh, into all truth here, okay? First aspect is this. Jesus is promising that the Spirit will supernaturally guide the disciples into all the truth, so that they may bear witness about who Jesus is 
and what he taught, and then record some of those truths under the inspiration of the Spirit on the pages of Scripture. These are the truths that uh, comprise the New Testament that we have here with us today. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. But Jesus is not promising, he's not promising that the Spirit will also provide us with new words of truth that are to be taken on the same plane as this word. Okay? The canon of Scripture is closed. It's what we believe. And the Spirit spoke to the apostles and carried them along, as it says, and they wrote what he wanted written for future generations like us to read, to see and savor Jesus, and to grow in our love for him. But that doesn't mean that this text doesn't still have application to us. And that's the second aspect of understanding what this means. The, the Spirit does also guide us into all the truth found in God's word, okay? Um, he wants us to, to read it, to search its pages, to find more and more, to understand more deeply who Jesus is. He wants us to savor him more. And oh, by the way, the Spirit also will guide us along the right path. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the, path, and the, and the life, right? And so we, uh, our way should be Jesus' way. The Spirit helps with that. So that's the, the second aspect of, of understanding this truth, that the Spirit does guide us to all truth for us today. It's found in God's word. Hey, if you're understanding scripture when you read it, maybe not all of it all the time, okay? Some of it's hard to understand, I get. Um, but if you're understanding any of it, that's the Spirit's work. That's Jesus' promise being fulfilled, okay? All right, so the first means of grace is the grace of um, uh, the first means of grace that Jesus gives us is the grace of the helper. The second means of grace is this. It's the grace of joy. The grace of joy. Look with me, if you would, please, in, in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. <laughs> so Jesus tells the disciples, hey, in a little bit, uh, I'm gonna be leaving you. You're not gonna see me uh, anymore. Uh, but then uh, they will see him again soon. So you can imagine some of the confusion in, in the disciples. What Jesus is most likely alluding to here in his leaving, he's talking about his arrest, the trial, the uh, conviction, and his death on the cross, which is gonna happen just hours after this. But then in a little while, Christ is gonna rise from the dead. In fact, on the third day after his death, he, he rises from the dead and appears again to them. So in that sense, the disciples in a short period of time will see him again. Now, let, let's look at, as Jesus continues here, let's look at verse 19. Now, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You know, what's interesting here is, is, is Jesus doesn't really explain what he means. So he kind of leaves them for a, a time in a little bit of confusion. I think it's because in the next few days, it's going to be pretty clear to them what, what he was talking about here. But he does tell them that they will weep and lament his absence uh, while the world will rejoice over it. Can you imagine one of your closest friends is murdered and it makes the front page news and everyone mocks. That made me sad. He then promises, though, that their sorrow will turn into joy. How is that possible? He, he's like, Jesus anticipates the question, like, okay, how can our sorrow turn into joy? And so what he does is he gives this illustration of a woman during childbirth. Um, I think most of us in the room could kind of grasp that that illustration and understand it. If, if you're a woman and you're a mom, you definitely get that firsthand experience. But he, he says that, that, that uh, for the joy that's set before the mom, she endures the sorrow, the pain, because of the, the, the joy of a, of a new baby, new life. Holding that, that baby in, in her arms, she endures the pain and the hardship of uh, the childbirth. You see, sorrow and joy are co-mingled together during childbirth. And that's an important point for us to, to uh, know here, is that joy and sorrow are inextricably linked in this broken world. Perhaps uh, help us grab this, uh, this concept. Another helpful example would be to look at the life of Jesus himself. Scripture says that, that he was a man full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, and then, and then uh, Scripture says he, he took our sorrows, he took our griefs, and he bore those on the cross. That's a lot of sorrow, friends. And yet, and yet, at the same time, Scripture also says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It's amazing. A man full of sorrows, but yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What is that joy? What, what kind of joy was set before Jesus? Uh, I get excited about this. First, uh, is, it's this. It's the joy of seeing the Father glorified by the most amazing act of salvation from the most ingenious redemptive plan ever thought up, ever created. Can you imagine anyone coming up with a plan of salvation that our God did? So joy in that. But second, I, I think it's also the joy of seeing the myriads and, and myriads of, of peoples and nations placing their faith in Jesus and being saved forever in eternity with their Savior. Wow, that's a lot of joy. Can you imagine the millions upon millions and millions of people that have been saved just since Jesus' ascension. And similarly, the, the disciples will mourn and they'll anguish over Jesus' absence, but that sorrow will turn to joy when they see him again. And what's so cool here, uh, in John chapter 20, when Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to the disciples together for the first time, do you know what the text says? We'll get there a little bit later on, but you can, you can uh, proof text me later. But 
It says that when the disciples saw Jesus, they were glad. They were happy. They were joyful. And Jesus promises that no one will take their joy from them. By the way, that promise is for us too, friends. That promise is for us. No one can take our joy. But Pastor Chris, how can I have joy when the pain and the sorrow that I'm experiencing and enduring is so strong? I knew you were going to ask that question. In fact, this is probably where I spent the most of my time sermon prepping this week. This is what we know. Jesus promises that no one can take our joy. Right, friends? So that must mean then that amid our sorrow, our immense pain, joy is still there even if we cannot feel it in our circumstances or emotionally. But you see, joy is partly an emotion. It's not all it is, though. It's partly that. But it, that's not all it is. It's deeper than that. It's more mature than that. So joy is not merely an emotion tied to our circumstances. Joy, get this, friends, joy is more bound to a person than a circumstance. And joy is a, a settled happiness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You get that? He is the joy set before us. He is that joy. Sometimes we have to fight for it. Sometimes we have to fight for joy. Because of the, the, the three S enemy that we have. We have, you know, sin, sadness, and Satan. They threaten to diminish our joy. So how, how do we fight? If, if, if you don't take away anything else from the sermon, and I hope you do, but, but take this away. How do you fight for joy? You fight for joy in this way. We fix our eyes on Jesus ever more intently. We behold, we see his, his beauty and goodness. We remember the cross. We remember the, the resurrection. We remember the salvation that we enjoy and can have by faith in Jesus. Hey, friends, we can enjoy our friendship with Jesus. By the way, he sympathizes with our weakness. Scripture says that he is with us and that nothing and no one can ever separate us from his love. That is the joy set before us, friends. That is how we fight for joy. That is how we endure the pain. That's how we go through the pain. In the midst of our sorrow, we have joy because our eyes are fixed on the person that our joy is aimed at. So I can have joy in a bad marriage? Yeah. I can have joy in job loss? Yeah. Can I have a, a joy, Pastor Chris, when I've just miscarried? Yeah. Yeah. Can I have joy when uh, my, my kids are wayward? They don't know Jesus? Can I have, have, have joy when I struggle with, with mental health? Yes. Yes. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you may have joy. I gotta keep moving here. There's the third service. Sorry. So 
Jesus gives us uh, the grace of the helper and then the grace of joy. And here's a third means of grace that he gives us, the grace of prayer. Uh, the grace of prayer. If you would, uh, let's look together at verse 23. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked uh, nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it, that your joy may be full. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, there's a time coming, the hour is coming, uh, when, when uh, you, you won't ask me of anything. You're gonna ask the Father instead, but you're gonna ask in my name. And he says that that the Father will give them what they ask for and that they'll have fullness of joy. Why? Because our Father delights to grant the requests of his children. Look at verse 25 here. It says, I have said these things to you in, in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, and because you have loved me, uh, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going uh, to the Father. Jesus here is essentially saying that in that day, after his work on the cross, the, the disciples will be able to go directly to the Father in prayer. Jesus's death tore the veil. It it, it removes the barrier, the access. Now we have freely to the Father so we can pray to him, we can go to him and we can go to him in Jesus' name. And when we do, we're essentially saying, hey, Father, on the grounds of of Jesus's finished work, we make these requests known to you. And it's only because of, of Jesus that we have fellowship with you and your family. And so, Father, help, help us. So how is prayer a means of grace then? Well, uh, uh, one pastor that's smarter than I, I've, I've read about on this topic says uh, that prayer, he calls it a, a wartime walkie-talkie. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking of maybe this dates me a little bit, but I was thinking of like those big old Nextel phones, remember those? Uh, that had the, they were cell phones, they were really like this maybe, but they were cell phones, but they also had that push to talk kind of, of reality. That's what came to my mind. Um, all of life is war. All of life is war. And the call to abide with Jesus, to, to stay close to him, is a lifelong battle because of the spiritual forces of darkness and because of our own indwelling sin that still remains. And prayer is our walkie-talkie. But if we're honest, often we don't really use it, do we? Or if we do, we abuse it, we don't use it properly. And Jesus says here, this is so beautiful, I highlighted this in my Bible. The Father himself loves you. See, I know Jesus loves me. And I know my Father loves me. And so, we ought to lay aside the inhibitions and selfishness that keeps us from him. And we ought to approach our Father in prayerful, desperate dependence, asking and expecting him to respond. And he will, friends. He will. All right, let's finish up here in uh, verse 29. It says, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now look at how Jesus responds here in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now really believe? Behold, 
The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, Jesus is, is calling us to remain with him our entire lives. No matter how hard it gets. And he, he gives us the grace of the Holy Spirit and the, the grace of joy and the, the grace of prayer to help us so that we would endure and persevere. Ironically, the disciples, um, he, as he predicted here in verse 32, the disciples do temporarily fall away from Jesus when he was arrested and he was crucified and this just hours after he said it would happen. But they ultimately, here, we'll see this later, but they ultimately repented and they came back to Jesus. And they remained with Jesus imperfectly for the rest of their lives, many of them to their very deaths, their very murders. And that should be encouraging to us. For those of us who seek to abide with Christ, we will do so imperfectly. But man, Jesus is there. Open arms when we repent, come back to him. How should we respond in view of these means of grace given to us this morning? Let me suggest three ways, okay? Three ways to respond. Stay close to Jesus. Abide with Jesus. It requires a, a dependence and obedience like we saw last week. Saturate yourself with the word and prayer. Hey, disciples are remaining with Jesus. Listen to him speak. They enjoy his company and they converse with him frequently. So we abide with Jesus through his word and prayer. Second, um, find peace in Jesus. Find peace in Jesus. Uh, true lasting peace is only possible in Christ, loved ones. I, I was watching a, a documentary on the life of tennis legend John McEnroe recently. And at the end, the, the final seconds, the, the, the very last sort of lines of the entire documentary, the, the producers ask him if he's at peace. And McEnroe uh, thought about it for a moment. And then he responds, no, I'm not. Does it even exist? Verse 33, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have Peace, peace does exist, friends, in Jesus. Third, take courage with Jesus. Take courage with Jesus. Staying close to Jesus in dependence and obedience takes courage. It takes boldness. The world will hate us. Jesus himself said that if anyone would follow him, they should deny themselves. They should betray themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. What's he saying? You pick up your instrument of torture, that's what the cross was, and you go with him to your death, if that's what God has called you to. It's hard. We need, we need uh, courage. The Christian life will be the hardest life we'll ever live. Yet, hear this, hear this, hear this. It is the most glorious life we'll ever live because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so friends, let us deny ourselves. Let's die to ourselves. Let's betray ourselves. 
for the glory of God. Let's courageously follow our Savior together. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Oh, thank you for Jesus. May his name not just be something we just flow, uh, just throw around flippantly. Jesus, thank you for the means of grace that you have given to us so that we might abide with you. The grace of our Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, do a work in this room right now. I pray, manifest your presence. Convict of sin. Give us the grace of joy. Thank you. Help us to fight for it. Thank you for the grace of prayer. Help us to remain with you. Help us to endure so many people in this room are, are, are going through hardship and pain. And so many in this room are doing it well. They're modeling for the rest of us how to suffer well. Thank you for them. What you've begun in us, oh Lord, bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.